Welcome to the Unbiased Estimator, the podcast in which we break down why we know what we know about the complicated world of healthcare. This is Daniel Wang. I'm a medical student at the Duke University School of Medicine with a degree in economics from Rice University. I want to learn more about how the toolbox of economics research methods can be applied to improve the way that we deliver health in the U.S. Today, we're talking about drug prices, specifically drug launch prices, and how they're impacted by the way Medicare reimburses medical providers for them. In June 2021, the Food and Drug Administration approved the first new Alzheimer's medication in nearly two decades, aducanumab, also known by its brand name, Aduhelm. They did so despite the FDA's own expert panel recommending against approval. And in April of this year, 2022, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services published its national coverage determination, stating that it would cover Adrihelm and any related services, but only in the context of FDA or National Institutes of Health approved trials. At the center of the second decision was a question of whether Medicare would pay the high prices Biogen had set for Adrihelm, given that the scientific community is still debating the effectiveness of the drug in improving clinical outcomes for Alzheimer's. Biogen had originally marketed one year of treatment with Adjihelm for $56,000 a year. Last year, without a final coverage decision, Medicare imposed one of the biggest increases in Medicare Part B premiums for 2022. One analysis estimated that the approval of Adjihelm could almost double Part B spending in the next year. However, with many hospitals and doctors deciding not to prescribe Adjihelm due to concerns about effectiveness and cost, Biogen has since lowered the price to $28,800 a year. In this episode, how does Medicare decide how much to pay for a medication? What are some consequences of that approach? And is there a better way? Um, so can you go ahead and just introduce yourself, like who you are and what you do? I'm David Ridley. I'm a health economist at Duke University's Business School. I teach courses on healthcare broadly, and I'm interested in healthcare broadly, but much of my research concerns the pharmaceutical industry. Dr. Ridley is the Faculty Director for Health Sector Management at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. He was also the lead author on a paper that proposed the Priority Review Voucher Program that became law in 2007 and created a market of more than a billion dollars for drug development for neglected disease. I'm very excited to speak with him not only about research, but the pipeline from paper to policy. And um, what kind of first led you to investigate this kind of question about how Medicare reimbursement impacts um, uh, drug prices. I think drug prices are endlessly fascinating, always in the news, so important for patients, for their health, uh, for their pocketbooks. Also, because I teach some courses on the health sector, I have to explain healthcare reimbursement. I have to explain how we pay doctors for drugs. And it's really messy. Mm-hmm. And it occurred to me that there might be some unintended consequences. Right. And since maybe not everyone is super familiar with exactly how drugs are priced, like I think in the U.S. especially, it's a little bit gray in terms of understanding, you know, how much are we actually paying for the drugs? Why are we paying that much? Could you talk just a little bit about how that policy works? Yes. So in this paper, we focused on how healthcare providers are reimbursed for the drugs they use. So I think it's important for people to understand that it's not actually Medicare paying the drug makers. It's Medicare paying the healthcare providers back for the drugs that they purchased. So there's some extra layers in healthcare. This makes healthcare endlessly fascinating, but actually also quite complicated because there are all these intermediaries. Uh, 
There are third-party payers like Medicare and commercial insurers. There are pharmacy benefit managers. There are wholesalers. There are retailers. But in this case, it's just focused on paying healthcare providers for the drugs they use. And the way they're paid is based on the average price plus a markup. And really, by necessity, providers are paid based on the prices in the past. And it's by necessity because Medicare can't know immediately what, well, I guess as technology improves, maybe they can do this faster. But in general, it's much easier to reimburse based on past prices. But that creates some funny incentives in this space. Let's trace the flow of money for a drug. The manufacturer makes the drug and sells it to a wholesaler at a price they set, the wholesale acquisition cost. The wholesaler then sells the drug to a provider. After the provider administers the drug, Medicare reimburses the provider for the drug. The wholesaler can make a profit as they buy the drug at a small discount from the manufacturer or get a rebate. And in the current model, providers theoretically profit as Medicare reimburses at 104% to 106% of the average price providers have previously paid for the drug, or average sales price. The real market is not this clear-cut, but it's a basic mental model that serves our purposes. If you're interested in learning more, check out Dr. Ridley's paper. It's also important to note we're talking about one specific part of Medicare here. Uh, for the healthcare providers out there, we're talking about Medicare Part B. So we're just talking about the outpatient setting, not Part A, the inpatient, not Part D, the retail. These are, these are say, uh, chemotherapy uh, administered. It, uh, you know, these are drugs injected or infused in an outpatient setting. For listeners who may be unfamiliar with the terminology, Medicare defines inpatient as being formally admitted to a hospital with a doctor's order. Outpatient is defined as when the doctor has not written an order to formally admit to the hospital. This could include getting emergency department services, some surgeries, or lab tests. Prior to 2005, Medicare Part B had a different reimbursement mechanism. Providers were reimbursed at a price called average wholesale price, an elevated sticker price that was often higher than the wholesale acquisition cost and largely unrelated to the actual price that was paid for a drug. So how do we get to the current average sales price reimbursement mechanism for Medicare Part B? Do you know like what motivated the actual change? Because it, it was really interesting that um, the, the kind of pricing that was before, I believe it was called AWP, um, and I think the moniker for it was like ain't what's paid because it's a really random, just kind of arbitrary price, and then changing it to something that is more so just tracking based on previous prices, which kind of intuitively makes sense. Like you want to be reimbursing for what you've previously paid for the drug. Like, do you know the origins of like how that came to be? Yes. So the 2003 Medicare Modernization Act changed the way that Medicare paid healthcare providers. And, and by the way, I should say we're going to focus on Medicare today, but a lot commercial insurers tend to mimic Medicare. So we can think about these effects also applying to commercial insurers. But in 2003, we got the Medicare Modernization Act, which changed the way we paid Medicare paid healthcare providers for the drugs they administered. As you mentioned, it replaced a flawed reimbursement mechanism. So we, in the past, we had a, a deeply flawed reimbursement mechanism, and I think we replaced it with yet another flawed reimbursement mechanism. And as I say in the conclusion of the paper, I think there are better reimbursement mechanisms, but I understand there's political resistance to those. I mean, we can talk about those later. Yeah. But you're right. Uh, AWP, average wholesale price, or more accurately, 
ain't what's paid, mm-hmm. was a silly reimbursement mechanism because it was a list price that was easily manipulated. Unfortunately, it replaced it with another flawed reimbursement mechanism, which is the is reimbursement based on based on past prices and had several flaws. The change in Medicare reimbursement from what is formally known as the Medicare Prescription Drug Improvement and Modernization Act of 2003 presented an opportunity for Dr. Ridley and his co-author. So one of the beauties of studying healthcare is that it's always changing. And so we had an opportunity to uh, to look at this change in reimbursement. And there have been very little focus on the effects of this change. And, and as far as we knew, no effect, n- no research looking at the effects of this change on prices. We had actually done some previous research about the effects of this policy change on other things such as shortages. But we were the first to look at as far as we know, we're the first to look at the chain, how the change in reimbursement affected drug makers' incentives for their launch prices. In much of health economics research, it's about the data you have access to. Most of the time, it can be hard to find and often needs to be collected from multiple sources in such a way that it can be stitched together. So there are a lot of price data out there. In this case, we use data from analysis source, which is which was affordable because it's only prices. I think the ideal data would be prices and quantities, but that's much more expensive. So it's much more affordable just to get uh, just to get the prices. I'll give a quick plug for Analysaurus. So great thing about their data is that they have decades of data. Every dose, every drug dose, form, manufacturer combination, they have a price for it. And they have a variety of prices. Uh, Wholesale acquisition cost, uh, ASP, um, which is average sales price. I believe they also have maximum acquisition cost and federal upper limit. And they have all sorts of prices for all sorts of products in the United States. With this data on drug launch prices between 1999 and 2010, the authors were able to answer the central question. Does reimbursement based on past prices cause launch prices to change? And the way they did this was a method called differences and differences. So difference and differences has been a popular tool among economists for many years now. Notably, economists received the Nobel Prize uh, for these tools a few years ago. One thing that's appealing about these tools is that it does emulate the gold standard randomized control trial. So you have a treatment group and a control group, and you can look before and after a policy change. So in this case, we were interested in changed after the Medicare policy for outpatient drugs. And so we could look before and after the policy change, and we could look across drugs that were affected and unaffected. There were some provider-administered drugs that were unaffected, but not a lot. So it wasn't a huge sample. So we did some comparison there, but also comparison to, to retail drugs, which are unaffected by the policy. Differences and differences is a method that falls under the umbrella of quasi-experimental research designs, which are often used when randomization to a control group and intervention group is not possible. Differences and differences might sound intimidating, but it can be quite intuitive. Imagine you're growing two plants. As bad as I am at gardening, I've managed to keep a few plants alive, like Jake the snake plant. So let's imagine Jake and his cousin, Blake. 
Jake starts out slightly taller, but I place both Jake and Blake in similarly lit rooms and water them about the same amount, keeping everything else the same, well as much as humanly possible. Each day, I measure their height and record it. Even though Jake is always taller than Blake, they grow at about the same rate, so the height difference stays relatively constant. Let's say that Jake is 5 inches taller. One day, I decide to feed Jake a super nutritious soil. I continue measuring their heights each day, but I begin to realize that Jake, the taller plant, is growing much faster than Blake, the shorter plant. By the end, I've discovered that Jake is 7 inches taller than Blake. Assuming everything stayed the same after I began giving only Jake the super soil, I could say that the estimated effect of the super soil on the plants was 2 inches of growth. How did I find that? Well, 7 inches of difference after the super soil minus 5 inches of difference before the super soil. That's a 2 inch change. This is because, absent the super soil, I would expect the taller plant to always be 5 inches taller than the shorter plant, given that I see them grow at the same rate before the super soil was started. I would say that the super soil had no effect if I observed that Jake is still only 5 inches taller than Blake, even after starting the super soil. So in summary, snake plants are very easy household plants to keep. And differences in differences is measuring the difference between a control and intervention group, both before and after intervention, and finding out how much that difference changed from before the intervention to after the intervention. In this paper, Jake represents drugs affected by the reimbursement change, and Blake represents drugs that aren't, like drugs with 70% of their sales in retail. The supersoil is the change in reimbursement that occurred in 2005, and the height we are measuring is the drug launch price. Using this method allowed the authors to have a treatment and a control group. To support these findings from differences and differences, Ridley also used multiple other approaches. We also used uh, interrupted time series, so looking at the prices over time with fixed effects for each period. Interrupted time series is another method that looks at trends over time and compares trends that are before and after an intervention begins. In this paper, a control group isn't used, but it is possible to design an analysis that does. In addition, Dr. Ridley considered institutional knowledge about the subject. And then to augment both of those, we, we used some anecdotal evidence, looking at some examples of, of molecules launched before and after the policy change within the same class, and even the same molecule that had some issue and disappeared for a little while and, and then came back. And then finally, to bolster uh, our credibility here, we also quoted the head of Medicare, who said that she thought that this mechanism of reimbursement actually had this perverse incentive of encouraging higher launch prices. So that's what I try to do in general. Ideally, I have a quote from somebody involved in it that says it's the case. Ideally, I have something that I can show in the raw data. It's beautiful if you can plot the raw data and, and see that effect. And we have that in one of our plots about cancer drug launch prices. And then it's nice if you can have some regression analysis using a couple of different techniques. I think it's quite helpful to present the analysis in multiple ways. So to help to persuade the reader that there is something going on here. So with diff and diff, you might worry that there was some pre-trend already or that the control group is inappropriate or that there was something else driving the treatment effect. So I think it's useful to have a couple of different approaches. Again, really my favorite approach is diff and diff. And, and hats off to the recent Nobel laureates. Uh, it is such a clean approach. 
it is so easy to explain to your reader, including readers of the medical community who understand what randomized controls trials are. So I think it's really nice to look before and after and across treatment and control. However, I think it's also useful to use the interrupted time series to show what's going on, what effects we see using those time-fixed effects and focusing really on the, the treated products in case there are some challenges with the controls. And as you said, with the diff and diff, it's not totally clean because there's not Drugs, well, drugs are often used in a variety of settings, and that's why the 70% or 80% thresholds that we used to classify drugs as, as one or the other. Uh, if, you know, if, if a drug was 50-50, you know, we wouldn't be able to use it. Fortunately, drugs are, are generally mostly retail or mostly provider-administered, but there's some, some fuzziness there. So it kind of gives you a chance to look at it in two different kind of perspectives, I guess. Yes. So you're not just like looking at it one way and hoping that all of your assumptions are, are true. Exactly. And I would encourage your listeners who are also researchers to do it a third way and a fourth way and a fifth way. And not necessarily with fancy regression analysis, but with a simple plot of the data. So the third way might be a simple plot of the data. The fourth way might be just some simple uh, anecdotes or, or examples so you can see that, yes, this really is happening for it in this setting. It can be easy to imagine when reading a paper that the findings were inevitable, but there are often many rabbit holes economists go down before coming across significance. Um, and I, I think one thing, though, that is slightly maybe deceiving about a paper is that you know, once you kind of plot out all these regressions, they like all look beautiful. They're all significant. All the all the graphs look great. Um, but, you know, I guess in research, from at least my experience, you have a lot of times where you think you have something and then you look at it and, you know, there's not really much there. So I'm curious, like along the way of getting to this, this setting where you have all these beautiful results, like what were the challenges? What were the things that maybe you started on, but like didn't end up panning out? I guess we have different experiences. All, all my results turn out perfect. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> That's fantastic. I'm surprised you haven't published more of that. <laughs> so, so, yeah, to be fair, I have several dead projects that, that didn't go anywhere. And I think, first of all, I'll talk about other projects and then about this one. I'll often be ex really excited about an idea, and then I'll plot the data. And if there's nothing there in the raw data, that's definitely a red flag. And often I'll drop it there. Sometimes I'll be stubborn and try to see what else I can find, and still there's nothing there. Um, in this case, the launch prices worked out as effective, as, as expected. However, other ideas we had for this paper did not work out. So my in, my expectation was that the policy would lead to low, sorry, the the change in reimbursement would lead to higher launch prices, and that's what we found, and a flatter trajectory, so smaller price increases. So two effects: higher launch price, yes; smaller price increases, no. And so, I think the reason why we found the effect for launch prices is that. Many commercial insurers mimic Medicare, as we talked about earlier. For later prices, many commercial insurers did not mimic Medicare. So the, the policy says that Medicare will reimburse healthcare providers based on average sales price plus a 6% markup. And we thought that that 6% markup would constrain later price increases. And the reason is if you take a big price increase, 
but your provider is being reimbursed based on past prices plus 6%, you're going to leave them underwater. So if you increase your price 10%, then the provider is being reimbursed at your old price plus 6%. So every time they use your drug, they're going to lose money. Mm-hmm. Until, I guess, you start dropping your price, right? Like as long as That's you're increasing right. your price, they're, they're losing money. That's right. Mm-hmm. So I thought that prices would be relatively flat because payers, because manufacturers would not want to leave healthcare providers underwater. What I neglected to consider was that while commercial insurers adopted ASP+, they didn't adopt ASP+, 6%. They adopted ASP+, say, 15%. And so commercial insurers are just typically more generous than Medicare. Commercial insurers sort of mimic Medicare, but with a little more generosity. Mm -hmm. We know that commercial insurers pay higher rates than Medicare for a lot of things that providers do. So now if commercial insurers are paying ASP plus 15%, you can increase your price 10%. And so, uh, so my failure to take that into account led me to have this hypothesis, which turned out not to be the case. So I think if I thought about it more carefully, then I, I would not have pursued that path. But that was a path that uh, my, my co-author C.Y. Lee and I went down and it was a failed path. I mean, I guess to your credit, though, that, that is like a hard thing to just know that it happened because, you know, like it's not like they're publishing out there like, oh, we adopted this because I'm sure there's like a lot of just noise in hearing and trying to understand like how a policy like bears out. I appreciate that. There is so much noise in healthcare. Yeah. It is so messy. Yeah. <laughs> that uh we that I we absolutely don't understand all the nuances until we dig in deep. Right, right. I was recently talking with uh Marcelo Cerullo. He's like a general surgery resident here and he does some research on like private equity acquisitions of hospitals. And he was talking about like in that market too, it's tough because they're trying to almost like cover their tracks sometimes because they don't want to know they don't want other people to know like what's actually happening in that market. So, you know, I, I'm sure like here, there's a lot of incentives for people to kind of be a little like gray in terms of what they're doing so that competitors or something can't follow or like regulators maybe too, like can't follow them all the time. Yes. Okay. Very cool. I'm sure you've heard the saying correlation does not equal causation. And this analysis can sound a little bit like correlation. So how do we think about these different levels of evidence? This is 20 years ago, but I was in a board meeting with a doctor who said that that anything that's not a randomized controlled trial is junk. Mm -hmm. And that really limits like what you can study, especially in economics. Mm -hmm. And I I think it's, it's a decent heuristic on for some people, because then I think they're rightly suspicious of studies that show a correlation between this silly thing and that silly thing. So it's not a terrible heuristic. But I do think if that's your heuristic, it rules out a lot of important questions and important research. Mm -hmm. And so I'm glad that people like you are aware that there are quasi-experimental methods we can use that aren't quite as good as a randomized controlled trial, but um, allow us to tackle some different questions and allow us to hit a bigger scale, which maybe even provides maybe more external validity Mm -hmm. than a randomized controlled trial. Right. Yeah. I think that's like the interesting thing. Cause I think in economics too, there's like been a huge debate about like, you have people like Angus Deaton who are more on the side of like, we need to look at like macroeconomics. We need to look at like large scale systems and how they actually work versus people who are like, um, more in like JPAL where they're like, we need little RCTs to look at like control effects in this area. And then we don't extrapolate. We just apply those to that setting. Yes. Um, and yeah, like exactly like you said, like 
it's hard because RCTs have less external validity because they might not extrapolate to other settings. But then inside that area, it might be great because then we can like specifically target the intervention there. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And I think that's like one of the things that's really interesting about econ papers is like the whole thing. It's not just like a presentation of the data. It's also kind of the presentation of a story. And like the entire time you're kind of, it's kind of like you're building an argument for your case, right? Like you're like, like I show A and B and C, therefore my argument, you know, is correct, right? That's right. That's right. And 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 yet, uh, D or an E or an F could be something else we talked about earlier, which is your theoretical model that there is this mechanism that we have in mind. Again, it doesn't have to be a fancy model. You can, ju- you can just describe it in a paragraph or two, but explaining why this mechanism might lead to that outcome. I, I'm glad you like economics papers. I'm glad that people in the medical community sometimes read economics papers. <laughs> Some of my friends in the medical community do not like our papers <laughs> for a variety of reasons. One is we're really loose with what goes in the methods section, what goes in the results section, what goes in the discussion. In the medical community, I think they're much more crisp and tight with what belongs in what section. And you're right, economists are telling this story, building this narrative in a way that makes logical sense to them, but is not as clean as you might find in a medical journal. So first I should say that actually I think our friends in the medical community are right, that we are too loose in economics with our breakdown of our method section versus our results versus our discussion. I wish we'd tighten it up a little bit. However, I think the beauty of an economics paper is it does try to bring in all of these sources of information, all of these analyses to try to tell the story. And I think it's really helpful that in economics, we're willing to look beyond, say, a randomized controlled trial, try to find some uh, quasi-experimental methods, try to find some uh, of these sources of variation that we can leverage and build up all these components, the theory, the anecdotes, the plots of the raw data, and multiple approaches to try to tease out the results. And I appreciate what economists are doing because economists are trying to go beyond what you can narrowly do in a randomized controlled trial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And like we're kind of designing these narratives because you know the world is really complex. There's a lot of things going on. We're trying to kind of isolate one thing without kind of taking the whole environment, just like closing it off and not having any like external factors happening. Yes. Agreed. And I think, I think a limitation of randomized controlled trials is potentially external validity. And so it's helpful to have some of these economic analyses. And by the way, I keep saying economics, but many of our colleagues in the social sciences use similar techniques, Mm -hmm. but it's useful to have these opportunities to look at some, some bigger questions, some bigger settings and see what sort of effects we can tease out and argue that are causal. Right. And I think something that's really interesting about these kinds of papers is that the data is there, right? Once you've assembled it, it is your comparative advantage that you've assembled the data. But then, you know, once you're coding the analysis and you're running the analysis, theoretically, you can replicate it as many times as you want. Um, I, I, like for me, something that was really interesting and really foundational was in my undergrad, I had a professor who we had this class and basically we looked at, you know, six papers across the class. Every single paper we had to break down like to its bare bones. We like looked at every single figure, asked why it was there, asked why they used the methods. And I think the most interesting part was we always got the replication package and we would replicate the analysis in its entirety. And I think that's something super interesting with economics that like 
you're like, oh, like if you don't believe me, here's the replication package and you can do all the analysis and see exactly what we're doing to the data to get our regression results, right? I think that's fabulous. And that replication revolution has been so important for credibility in, especially in the social sciences in these past decades. And I think we're it, we're only going to get better at that and only going to get more confident in the results. Having said all that, even if those results replicate, if it's a relatively narrow setting, it's possible that it doesn't have external validity, but at least we could be pretty confident in the internal validity. Right. And there are also other things that we kind of do in these papers and that you kind of showed. What, what I really appreciate about your paper is not only did you kind of use multiple models to kind of look at your analysis to validate that, but you also did all of these things called like placebo tests, right? Could you talk a little bit about these placebo tests that you did? Yes. So the policy change took effect in January of 2005. And so we we looked before and after that policy change. But what if as a placebo test, we tried an earlier period or a later period where we still see the results? And that's an important test because it's possible that there was just generally some upward trend in launch prices over time. And so if there's just generally this upward trend in launch prices over time, then an earlier cutoff than January 2005 or later cutoff would also yield positive results. And so it was reassuring for us that when we when we changed that cutoff date to an earlier date or a later date, we did not see the same result. So it it's reassuring that that was a, a meaning there was a meaningful change that happened at that date. So in general, I think placebo tests are really helpful for us in economics. So now you, we have to be sure we sh- we we alert the reader that. In the placebo test, we don't expect to find an effect. So they don't just glance at the paper and say, oh, there's no effect here. There's no effect in the paper. No, we didn't expect an effect here. But as long as the reader can understand this is a placebo test, then I think it can be really help uh, uh, provide more evidence for the causal claims. So I think we found a little kryptonite for your magic of always finding significant results. <laughs> Would have been a bad thing here if you'd found significant results there. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, this is one time where you don't want significant results. Right, and that, that's really interesting because, you know, you're, you're looking for the absence of an effect rather than just, like, the presence. So yes. it's actually a good thing that you don't see an effect because you didn't expect there to be a policy there. You didn't see an effect, so you can say for sure that Okay, it wasn't just random things that were happening there. It was truly, we expected it to happen here. We saw it here, but we didn't see it elsewhere. Yes. So after all that work, what did the authors find? Yes, so we found a massive increase in launch prices for provider-administered drugs. And we think at least some of that effect was surely from this change in reimbursement because the change in reimbursement happened around that time and our theoretical model suggests that it would make sense for providers so for excuse me it would make sense for drug makers to charge higher launch prices because of this policy the idea is that a provider will get reimbursed more today if the price in the past was higher so you want the price in the past to be higher as a drug maker and so you want to launch higher and we found that to be the effect And in the conclusion, we say, surely there's a better mechanism here rather than reimbursing based on past prices. And we suggest that providers be reimbursed not based on past prices, but based on the value, the cost effectiveness of the drug. Right. And can you talk a little bit more about like what you think that would look like if they were to reimburse based on the cost effectiveness of a drug? Yes. So it's a little bit like the 
way that the British pay for drugs, they pay based on the cost per quality adjusted life year added. I like the methods very much. I my only complaint about the British approach is that they're incredibly cheap. So they value a statistical year at life of life at 20,000 to 30,000 pounds, which is 30,000 to $45,000. So I think a statistical year of life should be valued at more than say $40,000, probably should be valued at about triple that. Now, part of the difference between the US and the UK is that they actually do have a lower GDP per capita. So it makes sense to have a somewhat lower price. But uh, I think as long as we get the cost effectiveness threshold right, as long as we put an appropriate value on a year of life, and as long as we appropriately treat drugs for rare diseases, I think they need to be given especially higher valuations. I can talk about that if, if, if you or your listeners are interested. But I think the key is that we reimburse based on the value of the product. So if the product uh, extends life by six months and we say that a year of life is worth, let's say, $140,000, then that drug would be worth up to $70,000. And so I think reimbursing based on what the drugs qual- it, what the drugs value add would be much better than reimbursing based on past prices, which tends to inflate past prices. So with all of this, what could be a better way to determine reimbursement for drugs given by providers? Um, Something that really interests me is like um, something that you were studying in this paper is that, you know, once we start a policy, it's not just that the policy begins and everything is the same as before the policy happened. Right here specifically, we see that this policy influenced probably in some way drug drug providers to increase their launch prices. So there's kind of a response back and forth. Um, and, you know, as you implement more policies, more people react, everyone's kind of considering like their incentives and changing as they go. And so to not be naive, I'm going to ask you to hypothesize a little bit, like if we were to actually use this method of using cost effectiveness to price drugs, how do you think manufacturers respond? What do you think like the effect would be on the market? Yes. So it's a great question. So if if drug makers are reimbursed based on the value of their product, how will they change their R&D portfolio, for example. So drug makers will place more emphasis on drugs with more bang for the buck for the healthcare system. That could mean cheaper drugs that do a little, or that could mean more expensive drugs that do a lot. In general, I think this might lead to lower spending on drugs, which would lead to somewhat lower investment by drug makers. And that does make me somewhat nervous. I mean, I think I think this method of reimbursement is incredibly flawed. I think it leads to cancer drug makers charging really high launch prices for their cancer drugs. And that's unfortunate. The good news about that is it leads a lot of companies to want to work on cancer drugs. And I don't know the full story, but my understanding is that, for example, one way that the people working on the mRNA technology were able to get investors excited was to say that this might work for cancer. And so maybe the mRNA technology continued through drug development in part because of the potential in cancer, which was in part because the potential to make a lot of money, in fact, be overpaid Mm -hmm. uh, for cancer drugs. And so it does make me anxious that some drug makers might be less enthusiastic about working on, say, cancer 
if it's less lucrative. So I think that's a legitimate concern as we think about how we pay for these. If it's going to lead to lower drug spending, it's probably going to lead to somewhat less drug investment. Now, I think it's going to be it's going to lead to somewhat less investment of in drugs that are of marginal value because if you don't add much value, you're not going to get paid much. If you if you add a lot of value, you're going to get paid a lot. Mm-hmm. An example of this, for example, is Sovaldi, which is the hepatitis C drug, it cures hepatitis C. The British, who I already said are incredibly cheap, are willing to pay $500 per pill for Sovaldi. I don't know, 300 pounds or whatever. They're willing to pay an incredible amount for Sovaldi. Why? Because it's awesome. And so, and so there are definitely cases where if you come out with a great product, you'll make a lot of money. And so we'll be encouraging you to come out with awesome products and make a lot of money. We will, under this system, you will get paid a lot if you come out with an awesome drug. You won't get paid a lot if you come out with an eh, drug that, you know, extends life a little bit or really doesn't do that much. So the big danger here is that, that some drug makers would be persuaded dissuaded too much from working on certain types of drugs. But the big advantage is we appropriately reward great drugs and save money on not great drugs. Cool. Uh, so in, in the spirit of trying to have more nuanced policies, I'm going to ask you to take a third step and say, given that you think that the response would be to work on these really like high, high investment, high reward drugs, which, you know, it's hard because in biotech, it is already like very much like you can spend a lot of money and then not end up getting anything because it is, you know, a hard space. You don't really know how these trials will bear out. Um, how would you go back and adjust that policy that you suggested, given the impact you think it would have on the market to try to reduce those kind of externalities that would happen? Yes. So I think my policy proposal would re- heavily reward great drugs and give little reward for not so great drugs. And your concern is that, well, how do you know as a drug development developer whether it's going to be great or not so great and that's certainly a risk and you will you're and you're asking whether i would layer on an additional policy to try to motivate drug makers who might be worried they have a not so great drug i think i'm willing to take that chance that that they are going to kill some drugs that are not so great um i'm willing to take that chance now mm-hmm. it, if you worry a lot about it then you can place a high value on a year of life. And so if you do extend life by a little, that's still going to be valuable. Or you can provide more funding for basic science, even some funding maybe for some phase one trials to, to, to further de-risk things for drug developers. But uh, it's okay with me if drug makers are not pushing forward on on drugs that, that do seem to have very little value. But finally, let me let me put in a plug for putting a high value on drugs for rare diseases. So one problem with my mechanism is that a drug might be really great, but only for a few people and thus have small potential rewards. I do think we need to, quote, overpay a bit for drugs for rare diseases. And the reason is that drugs for rare diseases are a form of insurance. What does insurance do? It makes you whole if something rare and awful happens. So your homeowner's insurance tries doesn't fully make you whole, but makes you closer to whole, gives you a big chunk of money if that rare, awful thing happens where your house burns down. Drugs for rare diseases are a form of insurance. They protect you, make you closer to whole against something that's probably not going to happen for you, but 
happens for, for a few people. We should be very generous in terms of paying for drugs for rare diseases, just as we're, we're generous in paying for our homeowner's insurance. My homeowner's insurance was a ripoff last year. I didn't need it last year. I, I'm overpaying for my homeowner's insurance. But I, I think that's the right thing to do, given that I'm risk averse, given and, and I think it's the right thing to do for drugs for rare diseases. Right. And, and kind of to talk about the way that economists kind of look at this, it's usually the probability that an event happens multiplied by the cost of that event happening. And that would be kind of the cost you're willing to pay if you're wanting to have, I believe it's full insurance. Um, and you're, you're completely covering the potential loss, right? Because for you, your expected value of loss is the probability that an event happens that's disastrous times your quote unquote economic damage from that event happening, right? Yes. And we want to build in some, some risk aversion here because I, it is, it, I suffer so much from, from massive losses and only a little bit from a small loss because of my diminishing marginal utility of money. Mm-hmm. We started this episode talking about the pricing of Agihelm the drug approved last year for the treatment of Alzheimer's. What would pricing look like in Ridley's cost-effectiveness model? And what implications could there be for drug development? The value is really low of that drug. And so the price would have to be low. For an, in order for it to be cost-effective, and, and actually ICER is, a, um, is an institute that evaluates the cost-effectiveness of drugs. So if you did ICER, Agihelm, you'd see what they say would be a reasonable price for the drug. Assuming, if you think a year of life is quality-adjusted year of life is worth $100,000, then you should price the drug at X. So they did a study saying what the price for this should be. And it's super low um, because it doesn't do much. Um, But, you know, you could still, you know, you could still market that. And in fact, I think if, if we had this if this policy in effect, then the Medicare would say to Biogen, if you price it at this, we'll approve it. Then Biogen prices at that, and it's approved. So, or not approved, but paid for, reimbursed, covered. So, I think that if we had this policy in place, then that drug would be on the market in the United States at a low price, and and, and sorry, and reimbursed by Medicare and commercial insurers, but just at a low price because it doesn't do much. They might actually still make some money on it because if you get uh, a lot of people, you know, for example, like Lipitor is, you know, was I don't know what it was. Let's say $5 a pill, but it made Pfizer $10 billion. So like if, 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 if everybody over 50 is taking your drug, even if it's just five bucks a pill, you're going to make $10 billion <laughs> instead of whatever they're making now, which is close to zero, I think. So, you know, in that system, actually... It, it, it could prove to be not so bad for, for this drug because it doesn't do much. We pay a low price, but they'd still make some money on it. Yeah. The question that I had though is like when, when I thought of it was when you were talking about like using cost effectiveness as a metric and you talked about how some drugs that have high effect will like, you know, make a lot of money, but yeah. then those that are like not as effective might not get attention. Yeah, um, yeah. And I was curious, like if you think like for that drug, if it would ever even get to the point that it did. It's a great question. Okay. So, so two things on that. So, what I probably should have said, if you're not a great drug, you'll get a low price. But if you sell it to a lot of people, you can still make money. And so that in this case, I think with Agihelm, but it's a great question. So I think companies would still work on Alzheimer's because... Um, so there are other companies making monoclonal antibodies now. That's Ankit. He's the other half of this podcast, and he gets very excited about all things Alzheimer's research. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. In phase three. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so Eli Lilly is working on... 
uh, an Alzheimer's drug, for example. And you'd still work on Alzheimer's because it would affect a lot of people. There's a chance that it would be an awesome drug. If you, you know, if you have the Sovaldi for Alzheimer's, oh then, boy, <laughs> that's a moneymaker. I mean, oh my goodness. Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, because Sovaldi made a billion dollars a month for Gilead for a while because it's such an awesome drug. So A billion a month? A billion a month. Wow. <laughs> I did not realize That's that. a lot, yeah. A billion a month. Now, they, like, paid off their R&D costs in, like, a couple months. <laughs> it's an incredible drug. Now, they're not making that now for two reasons. Number one, they've already cured a bunch of people. So it's a cure. So you don't – you pay – you know, as insurers, you pay a lot for a few years and then you don't because mm-hmm. people are cured. And number two, they got competition and that cut the price in half because of competition. Mm-hmm. So um, – but yeah, I think you still work on Alzheimer's because it might be good. And even if it's not good, maybe you can still sell it to a lot of people. But I think you still work on it because it might be good. Dr. Ridley is a great researcher, but he also has experience with the policy world. In 2006, he wrote a paper proposing something called a Priority Review Voucher for the FDA. This led the U.S. Congress to create the Priority Review Voucher Program in 2007 to encourage the development of drugs for neglected diseases. So what we want to propose is a prize. If you develop a drug for a neglected disease and you find at least one generic manufacturer, hopefully more, so you're giving up your patent rights and letting generic manufacturers produce it, then in return you get priority review for a different treatment. Yes, so we had... uh policy proposal in 2006. And we had a series of lucky events after that. So one lucky event was that the journal held a press conference at the National Press Club. So I got to talk about our idea at the National Press Club. And a reporter came up to me and told me about a senator that would like it. And so we got in touch with the senator. And then the next lucky thing was that there was already going to be a major drug bill that year. Every five years, there's a major drug bill, including this year. So at the end of this summer, there'll be a major drug bill because Congress needs to reauthorize the the user fees for FDA. So we had this series of fortunate events where the journal had a press conference, a reporter connected us to a senator. There was already going to be a, a drug law that year. And the other thing that happened was that our policy proposal was cheap and interesting. And so it's easier for a member of Congress to like it if they're not going to have to come up with the money to pay for it. And if it's kind of an interesting mechanism, it generates a little bit of a buzz. So the mechanism was that if you develop a drug for a tropical disease, you get faster review of a different drug and you can sell that voucher to somebody else. So for example, if drugs have been developed under our policy for malaria, tuberculosis, leishmaniasis, river blindness. And those developers were awarded a voucher. And then the vouchers were used for drugs for diabetes, cholesterol, HIV. So we had what we thought was a pretty clever mechanism to create value to encourage drugs for tropical diseases and speed drugs for other diseases. And those vouchers have been selling for about $100 million. So it's it's a reason so it's a useful incentive for motivating drug development for tropical diseases. Very cool. And it was called a priority review voucher, yes. right? That was the name of it. Yes, thank you. I should put in a plug for that. Yes. <laughs> priority review voucher. That's right, Daniel. Very cool. Um and I'm I'm curious, like in the process of kind of developing the law and having it, you know, come to be, 
were there things that were changed that were like interesting or like did you have to like make any compromises or any changes to like what you initially wanted to pass? Our proposal, the law was really close to our proposal, which was exciting. However, we did get a couple of things wrong. So one of the things we got wrong was that we said that you needed to give the FDA plenty of notice when you're going to use a voucher. It's been so long that I've forgotten, but I think we said you have to give the FDA, say, a year's notice. It's either a year or six months notice that you're going to use a voucher. We did that to try to reduce the burden on the FDA that so that the FDA would have some notice that someone was going to have, get a, a fast pass. That was a bad idea. The reason that was a bad idea is a drug maker doesn't know what they have six months to a year before uh, they submit the drug because the drug's still in phase three. So if you have to commit that I'm going to use a voucher on my product now, and then a few months later you see your phase three results and say, eh, it's not such a great drug, then you may have wasted your voucher. So that was a mistake, especially since FDA probably doesn't need that much lead time uh, in preparation for a voucher. There was another change that came later in the program. We we in, we included in our paper Chagas, but somehow it got left out of the law. So Chagas disease was not initially eligible for a voucher and later FDA uh, amended. There's, there are a couple ways you can add diseases to be eligible for vouchers. One is through Congress, one is through the FDA, and the FDA added that disease. I appreciate you being like very forthright with like things that you um, think could have been improved in like the the policy that you initially proposed. Um, I'm curious, like now that it's been a little time since you know it became into effect, I'm curious, like what you think of how it's borne out. I've been very pleased with the voucher program. One other change, one other thing that I did not anticipate was that. Congress would expand eligibility beyond the tropical diseases to also include rare pediatric diseases. So every five years, there's a major drug bill. Ours, ours was in 2007. Five years later in 2012, Congress added rare pediatric diseases. And that was wonderful in that a lot of sick kids have benefited from the voucher program. And indeed, Dr. Louise Marker here at Duke was able to get funding for her biologic for rare pediatric disease thanks to the voucher program. So investors were willing to give her team millions of dollars to help them get through FDA approval uh, with the expectation that the investors would get a voucher and be able to sell it later. So it's so that's been fabulous to be able to help some kids with rare pediatric diseases. The bad news is there have been a lot of vouchers awarded. And the reason why that's somewhat bad is that the price of vouchers has come down. So in our paper, we predicted that voucher prices would be $300 million, and several vouchers did sell for $300 million. But once we got a lot more vouchers awarded, the price came down to about a $100 million. So the good news is there have been a lot of people that benefited. There have been a lot of vouchers. The bad news is the voucher price fell from $300 million to $100 million, which means a weaker incentive. And unfortunately... I've talked to some investors who invested in, for example, a river blindness drug and helped that drug get through FDA approval, who said that they would actually not do it again. Because they invested in two drugs, only one of them made it, and so they made a decent return on the river blindness drug. But there was another antiparasitic they invested in that did not make it, and they lost money on that. So knowing, say, there's some probability of failure, 
they need a big enough prize to motivate that. And they said that they would not do it again, unfortunately. So we've lost investors like them. Now, fortunately, there's still a lot of people working on this space for a variety of reasons, and there are a variety of funding mechanisms. For example, the Gates Foundation often provides some early stage funding through organizations such as Medicine from Larry Venture that can push a drug through, and then the voucher can pull it the rest of the way, that $100 million prize. But you do tend to need more complementary mechanisms today than we did when the uh, when the price of a voucher was as high as three hundred million, very interesting. It, it is always interesting to kind of see, you know, you, you have something that, you know, theoretically this is what you think is going to happen, and then like actually see it bear out and all the, you know, there, there's pros and cons, ups and downs throughout the whole thing. But it's very cool that you, you know, have had a lot of cool successes through the program as well. Thank you. Um, so I guess like my my last real question I want to kind of wrap up with is like, you know, given your experience in doing that, like. How would you kind of talk to other academics who are working on, you know, trying to get their work out in the real world and trying to, you know, implement it and see what happens with it? Like, what would you kind of say to them about that process or like how to how to navigate it? It's really helpful to get your ideas out in front of reporters and policymakers. So in our case, the journal facilitated that through the National Press Club. But there are, are other mechanisms and Twitter is a remarkable tool today. And there are a lot of reporters on Twitter, and there are a fair number of congressional staff on Twitter. So your goal should be to get out in front of some reporters, get out in front of some congressional staffers with your ideas. One of the advantages of our idea was that it was, quote, free, that Congress didn't have to come up with additional money. So if you, if you can come up with a way that your mechanism will be free or if you could come up with a funding mechanism for your idea, that can certainly help. But getting your ideas out in front of reporters and policymakers can be really powerful, especially the, the, the congressional staffers that work on the relevant committees. So in our case, we had a Republican and a Democrat who are on the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee. So if you can if you can identify which senators are on the relevant committee or which members of Congress are on the relative committee and then talk to their staff, then you can get a lot more traction for your ideas. Very cool. Well, David Ridley, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. It's wonderful to hear your insight and all of your thoughts on this whole process. It's really great. Daniel, you, you ask great questions, so it's fun for me to get to talk to you. And thanks for the service you're providing for your podcast listeners. Um, is there anything that you would like to plug or anything that we can kind of bring up for our listeners to hear more about it if they're kind of interested in this world? I'd be delighted if someone else would take a look at our paper and, and, <laughs> and we'll post some links to that. Double our readership from uh, two to four would be fabulous. And also, we talked at the end about the Priority Review Voucher Program. I have a website. It's priorityreviewvoucher.org. And that's the show. Thanks for listening to The Unbiased Estimator. The link to the paper we discussed today and other studies cited in this episode can be found at sites.duke.edu forward slash medecon. For more from David Ridley, you can follow him on Twitter at Dave underscore Ridley. There's also a wonderful YouTube video summarizing the paper with fun animations that we'll link in the show notes and the website. I'd love to hear what you thought about the show. You can send comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes by email at unbiased.edsc at gmail.com. 
That's unbiased.est at gmail.com. Or on Twitter, at DanWangMed. Our contact information can also be found in the show notes and the website. The Unbiased Estimator is a production of the Duke Medical Economics and Decision-Making Interest Group. You can find more information about our group at sites.duke.edu forward slash medecon. This podcast was produced and written by me, Daniel Wang, and mixed by Ankit Chowdhury. All views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of the Unbiased Estimator's staff or advisors. If you like this show, please support us by rating it on Apple Podcasts and sharing it with your friends and family. Thanks for listening. One disclaimer I want to give on the content of this podcast is that I'm a medical student. Emphasis on the student. All content related to health information in this podcast is for general information only. Any questions about your own health should be directed to your medical provider.